too. Um, just to let you guys in on a little secret, uh, we had to switch some things around tonight. Pastor Phil was planning on being here, um, but about an hour ago, he asked me to teach. So um, there is, I have a, I have 12 pages worth of notes, okay? I'm not probably going to cover everything, but it's what I could throw together in an hour. And um, bear with me as we work through tonight. I don't want that to put a negative thought in your mind of, oh, no, tonight's going to be horrible. I think tonight's going to be great because the Holy Spirit's our teacher, yeah? Um, but I do want to just say my thoughts are kind of all over the place right now. They're still being collected together. And, uh, and I want to just pray for myself. If you would join me in praying for me, um, and that I would be just open to the Spirit as He wants to move and lead. So, Spirit of God, here I am tonight, um, getting to do something a little unexpected and uh, and just receiving that as a gift. Um, but I thank you, God, for the graciousness of these brothers and sisters in this room with me tonight, and the fact that we get to study Your Word together, and the fact that we get to to really press in more to this idea of of an identity that is. Uh, founded, established, rooted in Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask now that you would put on my heart the scriptures that you would have us talk about, um, whether or not they're on my notes, and really, God, that you would teach us tonight, because we are your kids, and we're here to learn from you. And so, Jesus, as your disciples, we gather together to be taught, to be led, to be uh, to be learners of you. And so, bless this time in your name. Amen. I love that Whitney was actually doing Break Every Chain and talking about this idea of power in the name of Jesus. It fits in perfectly with what this whole book series really, uh, Destined for the Throne, what this is talking about. And and it actually fits in perfectly, I believe, for tonight too. And I want us to, I'm just going to kind of plant the the seed in you now of what we're talking about at the end. It's what I was just praying about. And it's really this idea that uh, what matters at the end of the day, when we cover all of this stuff in, in this chapter, in chapter two of this book, what's, what everything is going to kind of boil down to is our identity. But what I want us to begin to think about tonight as we structure everything and as God teaches us is um, to not make less or to not belittle the idea of being what the Bible uses, uh, the, the terminology of in Christ. Okay, so the idea that there is power in the name of Jesus or the idea that we have any kind of power, it has to, it can only be found in the name of Jesus. And that becomes really cliche, I'm afraid, for us Christians the longer we're part of the church, the longer that we're in the faith. Because it becomes something that's so routine to say, I'm in Christ. We're in Christ. We have union with Christ. We have union with the Father through Christ. And we, th- this becomes really cliche to us, but what, what I want us to realize and to begin to press into is the, the gravity of that statement. Because the reality, friends, is that there is, like, we have nothing to offer God apart from Christ. To think that we have something that we can offer God um, that he can't offer himself is to actually belittle his sovereignty and his power and is to, to think that perhaps our our own holiness or even our unholiness, perhaps even worse, our unholiness, can diminish in some way God's holiness. But what we have to realize, what we have to begin to embrace, I'd say mentally and then also in our hearts, of course, is this idea that all of who we are is and only is in Christ. So at the end of the day, you are not your profession. Wherever you just came from for work, that's not who you are. If your work is being a stay-at-home father or mother, 
or maybe a stay-at-home husband or wife, um, your identity is not in that. Your identity isn't in how well you do or how poorly you do at your job. It's not in what your spouse thinks of you. It's not in what your children think of you. It's not in your successes, your failures, your money. It's not, and this is, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but we need to remind our souls of this truth because at the end of the day, we are not those things. And at the end of the day, I mean, for myself, a prayer like that would sound like, God, I, at the end of the day, I am, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a musician. I'm not a worship leader. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a friend. I'm not a son. I'm not an uncle. I'm not a student. Um, I could continue to go on and to list the things that I identify myself as, whether that's student, pastor, teacher, blah, 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 right? But what I need to also fall back on is that the core of my identity is who I am in Christ. Because any kind of prayers that we offer up to the Father, if they're not done in the name of Jesus, then what are they? We we're just making these resounding empty sounds before the Lord. All of these things are interceded through the Holy Spirit. And the only reason why we have the Holy Spirit is because we have Christ in us. And so we really need to begin to press into this idea tonight of in Christ, of who we are being rooted and established in Christ. So open up your books um, to chapter 2. I have really enjoyed this, actually. Uh, This chapter brings up, and we're going to spend some time talking about it, but a rather big um, theological question, and that being, could God have just saved humanity apart from the person of Jesus? Could God just have uh, had it it in his heart to say, you know what, amnesty, (laughs) I forgive them all. Uh, nobody has to die. There doesn't have to be hell. Could God have done this apart from Christ? This, this chapter begs that question. It doesn't necessarily get into that, but we're going to talk about that a little bit. And, and it really, the way that he begins this book, what, what, or this chapter, what Billheimer says, I want to point out to you, it's on the first page of chapter two, so that's page 33. And he says, exalted as they are, this is down at the very bottom, the highest ranking angel hovering over the throne of the most high is outranked, wonder of wonders, by the most insignificant human being who has ever been born, or who has been born again, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Again, as we read these things, we need to remember, we're reading this in, in light of the idea of we're in Christ. So this idea of redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that only happens for those who are in Christ. There is no other way, right? There is no other way to the Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And so we have to press into that idea that the only reason why we have this ranking that would be above the angels uh, in the afterlife, in the next life with Christ in eternity, is because of Jesus, because of his blood that washes us clean. So go ahead and turn over to page 34, and this is where what I was just mentioning. This, this is going to beg the question of, is there another way? Could Christ have done this in some other fashion? Could God have done this in some other fashion to redeem the loss of humanity? So read with me at the very beginning, uh, the first paragraph. Created originally in the image of God, redeemed humanity has been elevated by means of the new birth to the highest rank of all created beings. Jump down a little bit uh, to the third sentence, halfway through. God cannot become incarnate in angels because they were not created in the full image of God. 
So that's not to say that angels might not possess some sort of characteristic of God. They very well could. There simply se- or there certainly seems to be a degree of morality within angels. They know right and wrong. They know uh, whether or not they're serving God um, or if they pledge their allegiance to the devil, right? And so there seems to be some degree of that. There seems to be some of that. But what, what uh, Genesis 1 26 says is, is God says, let us create man in our image. And that is not something that is given to the angels. The angels at this point, we can presume are already in existence. They're already created, but they were not the ones that were chosen to be created in the image of God. So could God have become an angel and redeemed man through an angel, through the, through the death of an angel? Well, um, we don't even know necessarily that angels die. There is some debate over uh, does Satan, is he, is he completely destroyed, utterly destroyed, like his existence ceases in the end days, when, in the end times after he's thrown into the, the lake of fire? Or does that, does that include uh, Satan with the rest of humanity and just this perpetual torture, this torment of being separated from God? There's debate over that in the church. So can angels and demons actually be destroyed is one of the questions. So can an angel actually die, right? Now, because... Because God did not uh, um, take the form of an angel, what that kind of begs is this idea that, okay, in order to redeem something, that creature has to be pos- taken, taken form of, manifested, okay, incarnate. So God had to make himself incarnate then in humanity rather than in angels if he was to redeem humanity. So the idea here being, no, God does not redeem angels. He only redeems humanity because that's the form that he chose to become incarnate in. Is this making sense? I know this is some some heavier theological types of things. Now, if you're like me, I like to kind of exhaust some of the other options, though, because... Um, there's this idea of a Christophany. Does anybody know what a Christophany is? Kind of? Okay. Does anybody know what a theophany is? Would you like to share with the class? <laughs> no. Okay, a theophany is the, uh, the appearance of God um, in or out of Scripture, but typically in Scripture. So there's multiple theophanies that happen throughout the Bible. And to have a Christophany is to say that Christ appears in a pre-incarnate form, if it's in the Old Testament, or post-incarnate form. So, so he's either appearing before he's incarnate or after he's incarnate. For example, we have Paul who's on the road to Damascus, and he's going to actually persecute Christians. And on his way, it says that this angel or that this light, this bright light, appears before him, and it is the uh, it, it is Jesus Christ. But he's already died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, right? So it's already, it's Jesus who has been incarnate and who is now appearing again. That would, that's what we would call a Christophany. Now, I, I fall into the camp um, that says that there are also Christophanies in the Old Testament. I want to go ahead and look at one of these. And the reason why is because if you fall into this camp, then what you would typically read when you see the words, the angel of the Lord, is you would typically replace that and you would assume that that's the pre-incarnate son of God, the second person of the Trinity, now, that's not necessarily the focus of the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament is not laboring the fact that there is a trinity. Uh, the Old Testament is really laboring this idea of God's chosen people of Israel and his redemption of those people. 
but of course their apostasy and their sin, the way that they turned against God, and yet he loves them and yet he redeems them. That's more so the focus of the Old Testament. And so while the angel of the Lord isn't going to be this really pronounced thing that the authors of the Old Testament are wanting us to focus on, it is still something theologically that seems to have bearing that this would be the, the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, the Son, okay? So I want to read in Judges 6. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. Judges 6, we're going to be starting in verse 11. And what I'm trying to do in, in even reading this scripture is to eliminate this question of, well, if Jesus is this angel of the Lord, if Jesus is, then... Uh, Technically, he takes the possession of an angel. Okay, that's what I'm trying to debunk is that idea. But let's read in Judges 6, starting in verse 11. It says this. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. So I'm going to pause there. What I wanted to, to bring up is this distinction between the angel of the Lord and just an angel of the Lord. There's different wording that's used in the Old Testament when it's talking about this specific person, the angel of the Lord, who remains unnamed all throughout the Old Testament. It's not, he's not given the name of Michael the archangel or somebody else like that. He remains an unnamed character throughout the Old Testament. And he seems to function differently than just an angel of the Lord. Okay, let's continue reading in verse 13. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our father told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. So what I want to actually draw out here is the first address in verse 13. The way that Gideon addresses this angel of the Lord, because he uses the, the Hebrew word adown, and this Hebrew word adown is used to address men, okay? So he's, his first interaction with this quote-unquote angel of the Lord is he's talking to him as if you would talk to a man, so kind of like saying sir, okay, or like somebody who's just above you authoritatively, but still is human like you. So this is his first address is Lord, adown, Verse 14, then the Lord turned to him. Now it's using, I don't know if you picked up on that, but the term Yahweh in, in the Hebrew. It's using this name for God, the Lord. Said to him, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Now sometimes um, people in the Old Testament, you'll, you'll have a messenger and they'll be going to deliver a message and they'll be speaking on behalf of another person. So it's possible that this could be happening here. But I want to suggest that this isn't what's happening here, that we're actually dealing with the second person of the Trinity, which we'll see in a little bit. So the Lord turns to him and says, Go in this mind of yours, you're going to save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, Oh my Lord. And now he changes his use of the word Lord. He's not using a down anymore. Instead, he's using this word Adonai. This word Adonai is a, a, a replacement word that can be used to address the God of heaven. So now we're using a, a different word, Adonai. He's changing his address. He, he's beginning to realize, oh, I'm not just speaking to a man. I'm speaking to someone other. This isn't just a down anymore. Now we're dealing with an Adonai. How can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. 
I love how God goes to the weakest link. Verse 16, and the Lord said to him, again, Lord Yahweh, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Verse 17, then he said to him, if I had found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Now, isn't that interesting? If it's truly you, then let me prepare something because I want to know that it's actually you. So who is this you is what we're trying to figure out at this point. Verse 18, do not apart from here, I pray, until I come back to you and bring you my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah flour. Then he put the meat in the basket and he put the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. So he's literally preparing an offering. Now in Revelation when the disciple John, the apostle John, when he, when he uh, is receiving of the vision of Christ, the revelation of Jesus, an angel appears to him and he bows down before this angel. And if you've read this, this section of scripture, what you'll know is that the angel says, no, don't worship me, worship Christ. He's the one alone who is worthy. But Gideon says in advance to this quote unquote angel, let me go and prepare an offering for you. And he says, okay. So either we're dealing with the demonic spirit or we're dealing with somebody who can actually receive the, the praises of men, okay? So he comes and he brings it back. In verse 20, the angel of God said to him, take the meat and unleavened bread and lay them on the rock and pour out the broth, and he did so. So literally, he's taking these, ro- he, he, he's, he's laying them out on the altar. Did you pick up on that? He's laying them out on the rock. So he's taking these things that he's prepared, this offering he's prepared, and he's laying them out now on an altar, he did so. Verse 21, then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and unleavened bread and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now all of a sudden we have this consumption of an offering just like what we see as the Israelites are wandering around throughout the wilderness and the fire of heaven is falling upon the altar and consuming the offerings that the Israelites are offering to, the God, to God. This angel is, is, is essentially doing that exact same thing. Not only is he receiving the praises of men and the offerings of men, but he's actually consuming them just like God does. And what Gideon says, it says now Gideon perceived that he, that he was the angel of the Lord. Again, it's using this specific title, the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now, there's only one person in Scripture who you're supposed to fear seeing the face of, and that's God himself. Gideon here is afraid, oh my gosh, I've looked upon the face of the angel of the Lord, I'm going to be destroyed. And what the angel of the Lord says to him, verse 23, Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you, do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. This angel of the Lord looks a little different than just your typical angel to me. First off, he's receiving the praises of men. There's this whole change in Gideon's heart where he realizes he's not just talking to a man. right? He uses this word of down in the very beginning, which also tells you he probably doesn't perceive this person and think he's an angel. He probably looks at this guy sitting under this tree and perceives him as a man, and that's why he would use the word of down. So even the pre-incarnate Christ, if this is indeed the pre-incarnate Christ, which I think there's strong evidence to suggest that it is, 
Even the pre-incarnate Christ is appearing not as an angel, but as a man. So if there was any doubt in our minds as to, well, couldn't have Jesus just come as an angel and died? Did he actually have to come in the form of humanity as a man? I'm going to say even the pre-incarnate Christ is appearing as a human. But because he's pre-incarnate, of course, he has the ability to appear and disappear. When Christ is made incarnate upon the earth, when he is born of the Virgin Mary, he is then limited to where he is at locally. He still is omnipresent because he's God, but his, his humanity, in his humanity, he's, he is limited locally to where he can be. So, all of that said, I'm going to suggest that, like what, what Bill Heimer is saying in the book, is that, yes, Jesus did have to appear in the form of a man. He couldn't have taken on a different form, that of an angel or any other kind of animal. And in order to redeem humanity, God could not have just simply said, okay, away with the sin, it's all right. Because that would simply make God unjust and God unloving. In order for for God to be true to himself, he has to punish injustice. And so he has to, there has to be death. That's all the way back to Genesis. There has to be death for sin, even when we look at the coverings that Adam and Eve make, and we're going to look at Genesis in a little bit. But when when we look at the coverings that Adam and Eve make for themselves, it's fig leaves, and those are insufficient. God has to create, make a new covering for them, and he uses animal skins, which means that he had to have killed an animal. And so now there's sacrifice. There's already blood that spilled all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So yes, Jesus did have to come in the form of, of a human and in order to maintain God's justice and love and his perfection in the universe, he had to have actually spilt blood in that being of his own. Now, angels are not included in this sacrifice. They don't receive the benefits of it. That's what Billheimer is laboring here. That's what I just covered all that to labor, is the fact that we are unique as humans. And unique as humans, we receive this benefit that angels do not but that the sacrifice of Christ is reserved for those who would trust in Christ. So let's jump down to continue to uh, explore this a little bit more halfway down the page. Because angels were not made in the full image of God, and God could therefore not become incarnate in them, the fallen angels cannot be redeemed. No angel can ever become a member of the family of God. They are created, not birthed from above. Therefore, no angel can become a blood-born son of God. Angels can never be partakers of the divine nature. It's we, it's humanity who has the ability to say, like 1 John 3 says, what manner of love the Father has had for us that we'd be called sons and daughters of God. I love what Bilheimer goes on to say. He, he just continues to ask these rhetorical questions and he's quoting scripture. So I want to read some of them. But at the end of uh, page 34 and the top of 35, he says, did he ever save the angels, as he said of his disciples, that they may all be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be one in us, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfect and one, John seventeen twenty one through 23. Did Paul ever save the angels as he did of the church, that they constitute the body of which he is the head, the fullness of him that filleth all in all, Ephesians 1, 23. Did Paul say to angels or to the church, ye are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. The idea even of being, I'll take, yeah, I'll take your question in a second. The idea of being the, uh, the incarnate body of Christ now, or the manifested, I should say, body of Christ upon the earth is something, it's a task that's reserved only for humans. It's never a task that's assigned to 
angels. They are his messengers. They carry out his work, but we are actually his body, his hands, his feet, his heart to an extent, the, uh, the ones that reach out. And while angels minister to us, we are called the, the, the manifestation of the body of, of Christ upon the earth. Jack. So if you couldn't hear that, what Jack was saying is God can do whatever he wants to do. And, and I don't know if that's what you're thinking in response to, could God have just chosen to say, to remove all sins without sacrifice? Is that... So are you thinking like more of, in theory, God could have done this? Of course, the the theory behind that, yes. But so long as what you're saying, and, and it's true, but so long as it doesn't contradict a part of his character or a part of his word. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. My guess here, I'll speak for Bill Heimer. He's not trying to limit God. I think he's just trying to be true to the nature of God throughout scripture of what he he seems to be true. Yeah. We will cover that next week. Um, <laughs> <I'll> <laughs> um, yeah, we, we'll talk about that next week. Is it cool to wait till then? Okay, awesome. Any other questions before I proceed? Thoughts, comments? You guys are welcome to share, ask, interject. This is a class, you know? Yes. Because they're not created in his image. So because angels are not created in the image of God, they're not going to be able to relate to God in the same way. And consequently, because Christ did not take, uh, he did not become incarnate as an angel, but as a man, they do not receive the benefits because they are not redeemed. It's only man who is. And so we have a special relationship with the Father because of Christ, right? All this is about being in Christ. But we have a special relationship with the Father by being being created in his image because that's unique. There's no other creature that has ever been created in his image apart from humanity. Cool. Um, I think, I think there's a, 
some other scriptures I want to explore before we proceed in the book. Yeah, go over to Hebrews chapter 1 with me. Just kidding. We're going to come back to that. <laughs> you guys are such great students. Okay. Um, I actually I actually wanted to talk about this idea of uh, of what we are adopted into with the family of God because that is significant. That's part of what, what Billheimer is getting at in the book. In chapter 12 of Matthew, you can turn there if you want. You don't have to. But um, I'm going to read in verse 46 really fast. It says, While he was still talking to the multitudes, he being Jesus, Behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mothers and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to them, uh, said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now this is shocking language, okay? This is anti-family language. This is language that is not used by uh, good Jewish boys or good Jewish girls in this time. It was the blood relationship that was the strongest in this culture, in the Mesopotamian culture. And even if you go to the Eastern cultures still today, it's going to be the blood relationship that is the strongest. In fact, it wasn't the marital relationship that was strongest in this time. Scholars believe that it is actually the relationship between brothers and sisters. And there's even still cultures, believe it or not, today where the relationship between a brother and a sister is considered more significant than the relationship of a husband and a wife. There are still cultures today where wives will leave their husbands for a time to go back to their families to take care of their brothers or vice versa, where, where husbands will leave their wife and their family for a time to go back and make sure that their family, their immediate, their, uh, the nuclear family that they grew up with, that they are provided for and taken care of. And that's the culture of the scriptures. And so when Jesus uses anti-family language, it's shocking. He's teaching the multitudes. And he's, not, he, he's really making a lot of people unhappy. And that's why his brothers and, and his mother are coming to him. And so he's talking to people. He's speaking to the multitudes. And we don't know exactly how many multitudes there are in this, in this particular passage of scripture. But he's speaking to the masses. And he uses his anti-family language in front of all of them. In verse 49, he stretched out his hand toward the disciples, and he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers, and some translations will say, and my sisters. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and my sister, uh, my brother and my sister and my mother. So Jesus redefines what family is. He redefines what family is. It's not simply this blood relationship any longer. What he says is, is he's not trying to say that's not important, but you'll even remember when, um, when one of the disciples comes to him, or I guess a wannabe disciple comes to him and says, I'll follow you, but let me go back and bury my father first. Now, any <laughs> good-willed person would say, yeah, yeah, of course, go and do that. And there's some debate over, well, is that because this guy's dad was still alive and healthy and he was saying, let me wait 40 years till my father's dead and then I'll bury him and, and then in 40 years I'll come follow you? Or is he actually saying, like, my dad had just died and I need to bury him and I need to go through the 70-day the uh, mourning period um, or however long it would have been? I think it was actually 30. 70 was Egyptian. You know, what is, what's actually going on here? It doesn't really matter because Jesus, at the end of the day, he says, no, there's not time for that. You follow me now. Now, 
the reason even why that, that guy thought that that was possible is because right before that in the scriptures, what we're told is that um, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say that you're prophet, a prophet. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. And he says, well, who do you say I am? And uh, they say, well, we say that you're the Christ. This is Peter speaking. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. And then right after that, Jesus is, is having these people come to him. Let me follow you, but let me bury my father first. Now, the reason why this is significant is because Elijah has a disciple come to him. and He says, let me bury my father before I follow you. And Elijah says, sure, go for it. What Jesus is doing here is he's not only separating himself and saying, uh, or trying to reestablish what family is, that the family is the kingdom of God, and if you follow Jesus, you're part of this new family, but he's also saying, I'm not Elijah. I'm one greater than he. And so you follow me now because our mission is that important. But Jesus does use this, uh, what we would call anti-family language. But he's doing it, not again, not to just devalue his family. He still loves his mother. The reason why we know that is because he looks at John and he says, this is now your mother when he's on the cross. He, he makes sure that his mom is still taken care of. It's not that he writes off his mom. He still loves his family. He would cease to be God if he became unloving, right? He still cares deeply and passionately for his family. But he's redefining what the family of God actually is. And so he's saying, no, no, you need, to, you need to follow me now. These are my mothers, my brothers, my sisters. It's those who are doing the will of God. And that's what we, I bring this up to just say, that's what we are adopted into when we believe in Jesus. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we are now part of this new family. And that means that we are co-heirs with Christ, that he is the firstborn among many brethren. Again, this is only possible in Christ. All of the good stuff in our lives, all like the, even, man, even the gift of the Spirit in us, he brings us joy in our life. How, whether you're in a season of consolation where God is, oh, there's so much goodness happening in my heart, I just feel joy in God's love all the time. Or if you're in a season of desolation where you're asking, where is God? Regardless of where you are, the fact that we even get to experience those seasons of consolation, we need to remember that that's not because we're good or because we're doing our disciplines or because we tithed enough or because we prayed long enough. It's not about that. It's about the fact that we are in Christ and part of being in Christ are those, second, those little blessings that come along the way as well, the fillings of the Spirit. Um, but this is part of it. Being in Christ, this whole idea of identity, this only comes through and, and through being in him. This, this idea of having a new identity by being a part of a new family that only comes because of Christ. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, yeah, chapter 1. So I'm going to read in verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through him or through whom also he made the worlds, so this being Jesus, the Son. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by, his, by the word of his power, when he had... Uh, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being God the Father. Verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, 
as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than thee. Okay. The idea here being that for a time, Christ was made a little lower than the angels. We're going to get more into that language in a second here. But that's what we're, that's what we're going to begin to consider, is this idea of being made lower than the angels for a time and then exalted above the angels. Let's keep reading in verse 5. For the, To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let the angels of God worship him. And, the angels, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning, lay the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who inherit salvation? So there we see the, the, uh, the role of an angel. They are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who inherit salvation. And who is that? Those are us. That's humans. The role of an angel is to minister to those who are inheriting salvation. Whether those were Old Testament believers who believed in the coming Messiah, or it's us now today who receive the benefit of knowing who the Messiah is and having his spirit within us. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, being the apostles? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Verse 5. For he has not put the world to, uh, to come, of which we speak in subjection to the angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things under subjection, in subjection under his feet. We're going to look at Genesis uh, in just a second to see more on that. For in that he put all subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now you, uh, but now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So again, what's going on here is it's talking about Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a time, but now is exalted at the right hand of the Father, thus being above the angels. Now, the reason I want to talk about uh, Genesis... Oh, there's so many good verses still. Okay, um, let's actually keep reading in Hebrews because I want to just get to the end of this and then we'll look at Genesis. It all fits together, so thanks for sticking with me. Verse 10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. This is language that's only applied to humans. This isn't language that's applied to angels at any point. Verse 12 saying, 
I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children of uh, whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those whom through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. That's us, that's the Jews, that's the Gentiles. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, and this is talking about Jesus, of course, being made like his brethren, being made like humanity, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So we see a little bit there of the reason why Christ does become human, that he would suffer with us, that he would go through the same temptations, the same trials that we do, that he would actually be able to redeem all of that suffering and all those temptations, all those trials. We are uniquely created for God's glory in that manner. Flip over to Genesis 1, 26 and 28. You'll see how these fit together in a second. And I've already mentioned this passage, but we're going to look starting at verse uh, 26. So Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and do what? Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Your translation might say over all the beasts of the field as well. So what does God tell Adam and Eve when he creates them? He says, I want you to rule the earth and subdue it. Uh, You were created in my image and you're created to rule upon the earth and you're created to rule over all the living creatures, including the ones that creep and crawl along the earth. Okay. So now, uh, Again, this is one of one of the what uh, w- some of the translations might say beast of the field. The reason I bring that up is because in Genesis three, starting in verse one, we have now the serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. So we have this serpent who's called a beast of the field, right? And he's supposed to be more cunning than any of the other beasts of the field, uh, or any creature that God has made up until uh, or at, at this point, right? Um, any creature that God had made. Now, according to chapter 1, Adam and Eve were supposed to be ruling over all of the beasts of the field, and that would be the serpent as well. But something happens here where there's a little bit of a role reversal. Adam and Eve are supposed to be ruling and subduing the earth and ruling over the beasts of the field. But what we see in Genesis 3, um, let's keep reading in verse 1, and he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, 
For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the women saw that the tree was good for food and was pleasant to the eye and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So what we have here, like I was suggesting, is there's this, this role reversal. We have Adam and Eve who are supposed to be ruling over the beasts of the field, the serpent being among them. Now the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and deceives them and convinces them that what the serpent is saying is good, that what the serpent is saying is life. And so they take of the fruit, they eat it, of course, and then their eyes are open to the fact that they have sinned. They realize their guilt, they realize their nakedness, they find themselves hiding and covering because of their guilt and their shame. Um, what happens here is uh, what I'm going to suggest is it's more than simply more than simply them submitting themselves to death and more than simply saying okay now animals will be able to terrify us and they'll be able to rule us rather than us rule them as we were supposed to right I, I would beg to beg to guess that Adam and Eve were not afraid of lions and tigers and bears oh my when they were in the garden they were probably doing their, their intended role of ruling and subduing over these wild animals, these, these crazy creatures that we would run from and hide from now. But they weren't afraid of these things yet at this point because they were doing what they were told to do to rule and subdue. But now when the serpent comes along and the serpent tells them what to do and they submit to the serpent's authority, there's this role reversal where now man has sub- submitted himself to creation, to, to the, the created animals to creatures and that in doing so not only did they submit to the uh, the other animals to the beasts of the field and such but because we know that satan was possessing this serpent because and because we are made higher than the angels we are like christ we'll be like him what what first john three uh, i think it's verse two says is that we, when we behold him we'll be made like him so we know that if christ is higher than the angels now that we too are going to be made higher than the angels that's what we've been talking about this entire time it would I, I would guess then that if that was our pre-fallen state that when adam and eve sinned when they ate the fruit and subjected themselves to the authority of created uh, creation that they also submitted themselves spiritually now, the reason why I'm suggesting that is because there is great shock when the disciples come back in Luke ten seventeen and they tell Jesus, this was so crazy, even the demons submitted to us in your name. They had to. This is novel, guys. People were not casting out demons before Jesus gave them the authority to, or else this would have been commonplace and they wouldn't have been as shocked as they were that they had authority in the spiritual realm. So, to kind of put this all in a, in a nice little bow, and then we'll take a break. What I'm suggesting is that before the fall, we had authority not just over uh, the beasts of the field and all that stuff, but spiritually as well in, in the spiritual realm. But when Adam and Eve fell and submitted themselves to the authority of created, created animals, that consequently they were also submitting themselves to Satan's authority and that we were trapped under that, right? The bondage of death, sin and death, until Christ came, died, was resurrected until Christ came and gave that power back to us until he said, go and do this in my name, right? All things being in Christ. And because we are made like Christ, because when the beatific vision, when we behold him, we will be made like him and we will be made higher than the angels to such a degree that we will judge the angels. 
We are reinstated to our initially created place in the economy of God where we will be above the angels like Christ is, like Christ was before he took on humanity as well. Is this making sense? Awesome. The idea here being, though, you know, and, and I'm thinking, too, of this in the context of South Africa and us coming back, and I know that we've been sharing these these stories, and you guys have been hearing them, and I, I don't know how they're hitting you and you hear about these demon possessions and these deliverances and things of this nature, but especially in, in light of all of that, I'm thinking about uh, the fact that we only do those things. Uh, the only reason we have that authority is because we can do the, all that in Christ and through Christ. Again, it was novel for the disciples to, to be going about the earth, doing ministry, casting out demons. This was new stuff to them, and it was only possible, like they say, in your name. It's only by Christ that we have any, th- any power, any authority, any ability to do the things that we do. And what, uh, what Bill Heimer is saying here, that we are the body of Christ, he is the head, we are the redeemed, he did this for us, not for the angels. We have this very, very special place in creation now at this time where we get to partner with Christ as his body and actually carry out the things that he's doing, not because of our righteousness, not because we study the scriptures, not because we gather for school of ministry every Tuesday night and we learn about God, but because of Christ, because he enables us, because he empowers us to do these things. And so even on our break right now, we'll take 15-ish. Even on our break right now, I want to ask us the question of what does it look like to go about taking a break, drinking coffee, fellowship with one another, drinking tea, water, whatever, walking around, coming back to your seat, opening the book again, taking the time to listen. What does it look like to do all these things in Christ? not in our own strength or in our own power and our own ability, because we can do that, right? We can, we can all get up and walk and get coffee in our own strength, but what does it actually look like to do that with Jesus? The focus of all this tonight is, to, again, we, we, we are who we are in Christ. We have a very unique and special role that God has given us. So, ponder that, and uh, we'll be back in here in 15. Enjoy your coffee.